Good morning. Aren't you so glad that you get to be in God's house today? Well, my name is Penny Maxwell. For those of you I have not gotten to meet yet, my husband and I are the senior pastors here at Freedom House. Uh, he is actually speaking at our South End campus today. Uh, Pastor Michael is at our Lake Norman campus, and you might go, wow, how come the senior pastors aren't just here and broadcast all over the city? Well, because we believe in raising up leaders. We have not built this church off of the face of Troy and Penny Maxwell. It is built off of the face of Jesus Christ, and we believe in deploying disciples and letting every single person that has a gift use their gifts for the cause of Christ. You saw Pastor Olin up here uh, delivering the tithe message today. I am glad he gets to use that gift. Aren't you? Be glad that God hasn't called me to sing because we had people up here that actually have that gift, right? So we just believe it's really important that each of our campuses uh, have live speakers, that we're not just a video venue. So I want you to know that that's where Pastor Troy is today. Uh, but I get the honor and privilege of introducing, I could say a guest speaker, but he's really not a guest. He's family to us. Um, Pastor Rob McCoy is with us today. And I just wanna say to you, because many of you may know him as just being Charlie Kirk's pastor, and I was telling him early, I could not imagine having to pastor Charlie Kirk. That is, that would be a full-time job. But let me just tell you how we first were introduced to Pastor Rob. Back in 2020, when churches all over the country were shut down, we here in North Carolina fought back and 200 churches gathered together and sued our governor, and we were allowed to open back up. But even before then, we still opened, right? And you know you get called names, the anti-mask church, the anti-vax church, whatever you want to call it. You know, we got called all sorts of things. But in 2020 in California, they tried to sue their governor, but because everything is so incredibly liberal, they lost, and they were forced closed for two years. But Pastor Rob, in the beginning of all this, had had just about enough, and the governor cited his church uh, for having services anyway, and then it went to court, and a judge ruled that they had to stay shut down. Well, here's what Pastor Rob did. He got up, and he made a video, and he posted all online. He said, I'm going to be at church this Sunday. I don't care if they come and take me in cuffs. They very well may. But what they have told me is if I continue on with this, that they're going to come and get me and they are going to come and cite the first 1,000 people that show up on our property. I remember watching that and I remember thinking, what would the people of Freedom House do? Would they stay home out of fear or do they understand the times we are living in and would they show up no matter what? Well, that Sunday came, Pastor Rob was at church like he said, and not only that, but you look out the window and there's a line of cars waiting to get up onto the property. What ended up happening is he countersued the governor and this whole thing, I mean, fines out the wazoo. I know there was one church that got up to two million. Do you know what your fines got up to? 300,000, is that it? Man. So, so they did any and everything they could to try and shut his church down. But the people showed up because there was a leader that was worth following. There was a leader that said, you don't shrink back when the enemy comes in like a flood. You stand up, you be the tip of the spear, you stand strong, and you don't back down. That is a leader worth following, and we saw that happen in communist California, right? Somebody that was willing, and let me just tell you, we get a little spoiled because our state is purple. We get a little bit spoiled because we don't understand the fight that is going on in other states that are here in the United States. 
that were shut down for two years because the people didn't rise back up. Now, here, one of the things that I'm thankful for, and this is an election year, so we need to, we need to understand this. And some people are under the misconception that you shouldn't talk about political things when it comes to church. Well, let me just clear that up for you. Jesus was very political. He was constantly addressing the rulers of the day, not just the religious rulers. He was constantly addressing things. And, and some people would go, oh, separation of church and state, separation of church and state. No, no, no. That's something that Thomas Jefferson sent a letter to Danbury United Methodist. And here he was sending that letter to Pennsylvania. And he was telling them, don't let the government tell the church what to do, but the church should absolutely be affecting government. So what has happened is a lot of Christians have cowered in fear because they've been taught wrong. They've been taught to play a safe gospel. The gospel isn't safe. So here you have this leader in California in the thick of it who is standing up, attacks, everything is coming against him. And he said, I'm going to be here. I'm going to be doing, found doing what I've been doing for the last 30 years. Preaching the gospel, and I will not be moving. And what happened is you saw a whole group of people rise up. A whole group of people, because one man decided, if they're going to have the marijuana dispensaries open, they aren't going to keep me closed. If they're going to have the strip clubs open, they aren't shutting my mouth. If they're going to have the liquor store open, then I'm going to have where the Most High lives open. We are open. And so here we saw one man in California in Thousand Oaks, and he also, he ran for mayor, and he was the mayor as well. What if all of us rose up in our sphere of influence, and we decided to be in the public square? Instead of hiding out, wanting to build a shelter, we got out there, and we impacted our city. That's what this man did. That's why he's here today. So I want you... Freedom House, to jump up on your feet today, and I want you to give a big shout, a big welcome to Pastor Rob McCoy. Good morning, everybody. Bless you guys. Thank you. You're, you're clapping for someone I don't recognize. Penny, amen. Penny, you're, you're gracious and kind. I, Michelle and I, my, my wife Michelle's here. I'll have her stand up, and you're going to think she's my daughter, not my wife. But honey, would you stand up? This is my wife, Michelle. There's a word to describe her. It's... <laughs> so... Um, but Michelle and I agree that we know we're doing something right in life when God brings people like uh, Penny and Troy into our life. We're, we've been so blessed. And when we were going through that ordeal out in California, the definition of a friend is when the whole world goes out, they come in. And they didn't know us, but they supported us and they encouraged us. And, and that's because all of you encouraged and supported them. And you've allowed this to truly be the Freedom House, a beacon of liberty around the world. And I'm so grateful for this fellowship of believers, and I want you to give yourself a round of applause. You've been clapping for me. Clap for yourselves. Thank you. Um, and, and it's true that I was the mayor of the city of Thousand Oaks, and I was also an active pastor at the time, so pastor politician, and my mother, God rest her soul, she's, she came to Christ late in life, and she's in heaven now, and, but she would tell me, uh, you, you don't talk about religion and politics in mixed company. Well, that's all I talk about. I'm the guy you don't invite to the dinner party. So I, and Tuesday, we're going to be covering a lot of that. And, and quite honestly, I believe the body of Christ is thoroughly confused about your role in the public square. They're clapping and you're not. And I know why, because you've been indoctrinated and inculcated to think that somehow we don't belong there. Have you ever read Matthew 16, 18? 
Jesus said, upon this rock, he's talking to Peter at Caesarea Philippi, and it's a cacophony of noise of pagan worship in the most resplendent part of Israel. It's, it's at the headwaters of the Jordan. I've been there 22 times. And, and it's, it's inundated with Romans at the time. They're probably worshiping Bacchus and Aphrodite. There's probably nudity going on. These Orthodox boys walk with Jesus from Galilee up to the headwaters. And these guys are checking out all these women bathing in the water. And, oh. and, and they're all, Bacchus was a god of alcohol, Aphrodite, you know, sensuality. And, and Jesus, in the, in the mix of the cacophony of noise of pagan worship, turns to his disciples and says, who do men say that I am? Well, some, some say you're John the Baptist, others say you're Jeremiah. He says, yeah, but who do you say that I am? And it's where Peter says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God, you're the Messiah. He says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood is not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven, and upon this rock, I will build my. And everyone says, church. Ah. That word didn't come till hundreds of years later. The word is ecclesia or ecclesia. Aristotle translated it. The etymology of the word means, are you ready for this? Public square or city hall. Better yet, Tyndale, in the Bible you have in your hand, if you have one, it's the only book in the world, by the way, that you don't read it, it reads you. And a person whose Bible's falling apart is a sign their life usually isn't. But, but that book you're holding, the very first translation into the English language from the original manuscripts was done by a man named William Tyndale. When he came to Matthew 16, 18, and he translated that word ecclesia, in English he put assembly, which means gathering of a public, uh, a, 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 a public gathering. And for that one word, the king had him hung and his remains burned because he didn't want anyone contending for his political power of this idea of an oligarchy where the few rule the many. You've now enjoyed, you've now as Americans have enjoyed 200 and almost 250 years of unprecedented freedom. If you ride in an elevator, it was invented by an American. If you enjoy air conditioning, it was invented by an American. If you've flown in an airplane, it was invented by an American. If you enjoy the internet, it was invented by an American, not Al Gore. And all of this is because we've accumulated more wealth, more patents, more Nobel Peace Prize winners. We've created more symphonies than any other nation in the history, 6,000 years of recorded history of the world. And you've forgotten who you are. And the reason why you have so much freedom is because our founders understood the power of a constitutional republic and they learned that from the Israelites in the wilderness. When Jethro said to Moses, appoint godly men who are not covetous over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens, federal, state, county, local. You know where they got the three parts of government, executive, legislative, and judicial branch? Out of Isaiah, the king is our lawgiver, our judge. Huh? King, that's, that's executive. Lawgiver, that's legislative. And judge, that is your legislative and judicial branches. They understood power had to be divided. They understood accountability. And so as we've stepped into this, on Tuesday night, you're gonna learn more about that. And I, I want you to come out for it. And then finally, before I get into the message, I just wanted to say, Pastor Olin, when you were talking about tithing and you were talking about how God views money, it was such a brilliant yeah. study in such a short amount of time. I wish God had made two of you and none of me. It was unbelievable. <laughs> One thing I, I would try to add that I'm probably gonna ruin, but, but you know, I, I was going in, it was, it was Friday morning, I was doing our men's Bible study. It was early in the morning, I stopped at Starbucks uh, before they became socialists. And I, I stopped at Starbucks and I was going in to get a cup of coffee because I was exhausted and Friday mornings I have to be on it. And I'm walking in, there's a kid, he's, he's not starving, he's disheveled because he's been sleeping out on the streets, he's homeless. And he goes, hey man, do you have any money? And I look at him and I said, listen, if you can answer one question, I'll give you some money. He goes, what? I go, what is money? Well, it's the stuff you need to get stuff with. Oh man, I'm sorry, that's not the answer. God bless you. He go, wait, 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 what's the answer? I go, ah, so you want to learn? Yeah, what's the answer? I go, come on in. I'm going to get you some coffee and some food, and I'll teach you why we're in there. And he goes, what's money? I go, hang on, let's get some food first, man. We get some food. I go, money is a representation of your contribution to society. You've made no contribution, thus you have no money. Wow. Now, some of you think money is to be redistributed. So if you, it's like grades. You go to school, yeah, I'm assuming. You look smart. No, you graduated, I don't know. But let's say you're both in the class together. You're getting an A and you're getting an F. You do all your homework, you do everything. You're getting an F. You don't even show up at class. You are lazier than can all get out. And now it's time for redistribution. I'm gonna take two grades from you and give you a C, and I'm gonna give you two grades, and, and you're gonna get a C, and you're both gonna have a C. Isn't that great? 
Well, next semester, you're going to be like, I ain't working that hard because you're just going to take my grades from me. And you're like, where's my handout? And so what happens is productivity decreases. That's why you can take the fourth greatest nation in the Western Hemisphere, Venezuela, give them socialism, which is communism, redistribution, socialism. Oh, no, no, no. It's Democrat socialism. Uh-uh. Socialism, Democrat socialism, socialism is a turd, and, and Democrat socialism is sprinkles on that. You can take the fourth greatest nation in the Western Hemisphere and give them socialism, and in a very short time, they're eating their zoo animals, and their inflation is 360% annually. You've brought complete poverty because productivity. You've taken away the freedom for man to accomplish great things. You've made no contribution to society. Well, a burger flipper should make as much as a doctor. No, it takes 10 years to get a doctorate to, to be able to commit surgery on somebody. And to flip a burger doesn't require as much. You, you, you're not, your contribution isn't as significant as the person who studied. Okay? And, and they invent things. No one forced you to get an iPhone. But because they made life simple on you, you went out and gave them money because it makes life simple. And well, they should give me some of what they... No, no, you, they gave you an iPhone. And the idea is God wants us to make life easy on others. And, and wealth is created when two parties benefit. And finally, again, you two, you're a farmer, you're a baker. This is what we're doing on Tuesday night. You're a farmer, you're a baker. And, and you grow grain, and then you buy the grain for a price the market will bear. And with the profit you make, you buy more fields and hire more workers. And you bake the bread with the grain you purchase and you sell it for a price the market will bear. And with the profit you make, you buy more ovens and hire more workers. For wealth to be created, two parties have to benefit. The government doesn't create wealth, it just divides it. And the greater the government, the smaller the citizen. And all of you are saying, well, church doesn't have any purpose in government. Wrong. The two great commandments, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law of the prophets. You, you want your neighbor to have their children taken away from them because they believe there's only two genders? That's what's happening in California. They're taking children from parents because they have the audacity to say there's only two genders. Is that, is that, is that doing good for your neighbor? Or are you going to compromise the truth because you want to get along because you think mistakenly that peace is the absence of conflict? Peace isn't the absence of conflict. It's the presence of Christ in the midst of the conflict. You stand upon these principles for the sake of your neighbor. I didn't remain open because I wanted press coverage. We didn't even do a press release. I remained open because I had served in government I knew what they were doing. I was aware of the data from the Diamond Princess. I knew this wasn't a, a virus that was going to kill humanity. I knew they had no right to shutter our doors. I knew the Bible said that the church is the bride of Christ. You tell me my wife's non-essential, this beautiful woman here, you'll be picking up your teeth with your broken arm. And pastors should stand for the sake of the body of Christ. <laughs> I, my, praise the Lord. So that's what we're covering on Tuesday night. Come on out. And now I better get to my message. Pastor Troy, thank you. Pastor Troy told me, you know, we're doing a series on vision. And, and I look at Pastor Troy, Pastor Penny, they have more vision in their little finger than I have in my whole body. But, but they're saying, we're doing a thing on vision. I thought, okay, uh, vision, vision. Do I have a sermon on vision? But I thought, well, the one thing I do know very clearly is what hinders vision. The most powerful force to take away vision for you to see the world the way God sees is to have it clouded by bitterness and unforgiveness. It's one of the most poisonous pills you could ever swallow. And you, you take that pill because the person you hate that's hurt you, 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 you live in bitterness and you want revenge. And you're, you're basically taking a pill that's killing you while you're waiting the for the person you hate to die. And nothing hinders your ability to see what God wants to do in and through you than the, than the sin of unforgiveness. And it is a sin. It is a sin. And I, I, I was contemplating that. One of my favorite characters in the Bible is King David. I've done extensive studies on his life. It's, it's been so helpful in the midst of, of, of politics to know this man's life. 
He's the only one in scripture who was given a title. It's a profound title. I, I would wish that upon all of us. A man after God's own heart. I don't know. I think that's a pretty cool title. But I want to tell you something about King David. He's known for two things. His greatest success and his greatest failure. His greatest success was taking down a nine foot, 10 inch giant with a sling and a stone and cutting off his head when no one else would confront this giant that was occupying territory that rightfully belonged to God, he stepped forward in faith. He didn't see a nine foot, 10 inch giant because in the eyes of God, that's not what God, Goliath looks like. In the eyes of God who holds the heavens in the span of his hand, which means from his middle finger to his thumb, he holds the heavens in the span of his hand. You come down to the Milky Way galaxy. You come down to our solar system. And then you go down there to earth. And then you go down there to the Middle East. And then there's Israel. And there's the David walked out with the eyes of God, the vision to see that that's not a giant, that's a reproach, a defiler of the armies of Israel. An uncircumcised Philistine, he didn't call him a champion, he didn't call him a giant. He saw him through the eyes of God and he vanquished him. And the reason why I say that, that was his greatest victory. But his greatest defeat, his greatest failure, was with a woman named Bathsheba. David, and, and, and they've now excavated, they said it didn't exist, all these scholars, but they found it, and it's one of the greatest excavations of modern time, the city of David. I've been to Israel 22 times, and you stand on the rooftop overlooking the city of David, you get a vision of what David had. You see all the rooftops and the houses, and they would shower outside or bathe outside, and he knew where Bathsheba would go every day, and he would position himself and he would look at her. Greatest sexual organ we possess is our brain. What the mind conceives, the body will seek to achieve. And he's committing that sin a thousand times in his mind as he's watching her bathe. And finally, he sends all of his soldiers out to war. And he stays back. The king's supposed to be in the front of the army. But he stays back in the spring when soldiers go to war. And he calls to have Bathsheba brought to the palace and he commits adultery with her. He, he didn't have an affair. I hate that word affair. You, you, you dress up for affairs. You wear a coat and tie or, you know, tuxedo. Affairs are fun. That's not, it's called adultery. It's adultery. And he commits adultery with Bathsheba. And lo and behold, she gets pregnant. And he tries to cover it up. By the way, there's no secrets in a palace. Everyone knew she had been called for. Everyone knew she was with child. The rumors start to circulate. And David tries to cover his sin instead of confess it and, and, and own it. And he calls Bathsheba's husband, who is fighting on the front lines, calls the husband off the front lines and brings him to the palace and says, you know what? You need some R&R, &R, brother. Why don't you go and sleep with your wife? Uriah knows exactly what's going on. He's not being deceived, and he deliberately sleeps on the doorpost. and says, I'm not going in there, and you're not getting off scot-free. We both know what you've done. So David sends him back to war, tells Joab, listen, put Uriah on the front lines, and when it's advantageous, call back the troops and leave him out there hanging in the wind and let him be killed. David put the hit on him. He murdered him by proxy. Man after God's own heart commits two sins for which there's no sacrifice in all of Israel, murder and adultery. Wow. Man after God's own heart, really. I don't know about you, but I have a little trouble with that. Anybody else? This is a contributing kind of sermon. <laughs> How many of you were born on your birthday? Can you raise your hand? Good. All right, so you are living. How many people have a problem with that? Amen. It's okay. But we're talking about it. it. He's a liar and a murderer. And, and I, I look at that and I think to myself, Lord, why'd you pick this guy? Because one day I would pick you. And you, you, you. For all have sinned. Do you know what the for all means in the Greek? For all, yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And you think yourself not a murderer. The Bible says you don't need a gun to kill someone. Your words will do just fine. You're stupid. You can gossip, which is murder. You can flatter, which is murder. Gossip is what you'd say 
behind someone's back that you wouldn't say to their face, and flattery is what you'd say to their face, but you wouldn't say behind their back. Both are, are, are wicked and deadly. You're destroying someone's character for sport to elevate yourself in, at the expense of another. So you are a murderer just like I have been. Well, I'm not an adulterer. The Bible says you conceive it in your mind. You've, you're guilty. Ooh. So let's try that again. How many people have a problem with David? <laughs> to the level you judge, you will be judged, right? Now it's a little easier to go, okay, Lord, he's after your own heart. How do I do that? Because <laughs> I'm just like him. Yeah? It's hard to admit that, isn't it? We all have a problem saying we're wrong. Men, husbands, we blow it all the time. We've learned to just go, I'm sorry, I was wrong. Let's just get this over with. <laughs> Used to be early on in the marriage, you go, I was I was I was wrong, wrong. I'm sorry. Now we do it. We just get that off our chest and we go, I was wrong and I'm sorry. And you're like, and your turn. And your wife is like, thank you. Yes, thank you. I accept your apology. Is there anything else you'd like to say? No, I think that's sufficient. Everybody has an issue with acknowledging failure. It's called ego, I, self-preservation. We all struggle with that. We all struggle to ask for forgiveness and we struggle with forgiving because we're human beings with a fallen sin nature. Well, this is an interesting time because that's the thing that hinders vision the most. There's a man in scripture who was affiliated with King David. He was gift from God to King David. He wasn't an Israelite, he was a Gileanite. His name was Ahithophel. Ahithophel had converted to Judaism. He had made Israel his nation. He became a member of King David's court. He was a counselor to the king. And it was said of Ahithophel that when he spoke, it was though the mouth of God himself were speaking. Could you imagine being so gifted by God that when your mouth is moving, you're an instrument that the Lord would choose to use you to speak the profound nature of his word that transforms human beings and creates the heavens and the earth. That word, this was Ahithophel. His counsel was wise. He had served David for decades. And, and David, yes, a murderer. David, yes, an adulterer. He struggled. He was a great king, but he was a terrible father. And David's kids grew up in rebellion. One in particular was a young man named Absalom. Absalom had this flowing hair, kind of like Favio. And, and he tried to get his father's attention. He'd ride the chariot through Jerusalem. And dad, here I'm, listen to me. Why don't you ever pay attention to me? And David struggled with parenting because of his sin in his own life. And, and, and he didn't parent very well. Well, the kids grew up to be rebels. And Absalom rebelled against his own father. He tried to take the kingdom and he stood in the city gate and he started to win the hearts of all the citizenry while David was working diligently in, in the management of the kingdom. Absalom was stealing it from him. And so Absalom decides to rebel. And by the way, any donkey can knock down a barn door, but only a carpenter can build one. The Absaloms of the world are like many of us at certain seasons in our life. Maybe for some of you right now, you have the ability to look at something and if there's a loose thread on that sweater, you'll unravel it because it makes you feel so good to show all the faults of another human being. It elevates you. And you just love to knock things down. You go after the government. Oh, they're all wicked. I don't do politics. Politics is dirty. Well, the church is dirty. What's your point? Why, well, I'm tired of voting for the lesser of two evils. Unless Jesus is running for office, you're always voting for the lesser. Quit, quit your moral pietism. You're making excuses not to participate for the sake of your neighbor because it's too difficult. You know that. You know that. I have never faced persecution in the pulpit of America like I did when I stepped into political office. 
Satan doesn't want you there. And you, you agree with him. Oh, the church doesn't belong there. Says who? That's called nominalism. And, and you, you, you justify your apathy and inactivity and you, and you use eschatology to do it. Oh, the Antichrist is coming, the end times. You're, you're, you're contending with the will of God. Last time I read the scripture, we know not the day nor the hour. And it says in Luke that we're to occupy until he comes. Who died and made you judge and jury of the, of the Lord's return? I have news for you. I want him to return yesterday. If he returns right now, he's going to find me busy honoring him. The lamps will be lit. I'm prepared for his return. We, we use eschatology like examining the lint in our belly button and we use it as justification not to participate in the lives of the people we're called to love like we love ourselves because we're afraid of conflict. We want to be liked. Liked? Yes, I have a lot of, I have a lot of friends on, on the social media sites. Really? What are their names? Well, there's a lot of names. I don't know their names, but they're my friends. And if I, if I stand for something, I lose a lot of them. Oh, those are really solid friends. They're just like Troy and Penny. Oh, wait, no. They came in when everyone went out. Come on, folks. God hasn't given you a spirit of fear, but a power, love, and a sound mind. You're more than a conqueror in Christ Jesus. What are you afraid of? Well, this is the picture. You see... Ahithophel, David's most trusted counselor, Absalom rebels against his father. And what happens is David gets word that Ahithophel sides with Absalom. David's shocked. This guy's been with me for decades. His son Eliam is one of my mighty men. He got the Medal of Honor. He's in 2 Samuel 23. There's no possibility that Ahithophel, this is, this is tragic. He's going to give counsel to Absalom that's going to just destroy us. We find this in 2 Samuel 15. David went up to the ascent of the Mount of Olives and wept as he went up. And he had his head covered and he went barefoot. And all the people who were with him covered their heads and went up weeping as they went. They're exiting Jerusalem in the city of David because they know Absalom's coming in to destroy them. Then someone told David saying, if it couldn't get any worse, someone comes and tells David, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, oh, Lord, and he prays right there. This is his prayer. Check this out. Oh, Lord, I pray. Turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. Amen. Now, it happened when David had come to the top of the mountain when he worshiped God, there was Hushai, the archite, coming to meet with him. His robe was torn and dust was on his head. Hushai was another counselor to the king, not as solid as Ahithophel. And Hushai comes and says, King, I'm here to serve you. And David says, I don't need you here. You've got to get to the, to the city of David where Absalom is, and you've got to infiltrate his administration and thwart the counsel of Ahithophel, or we're all done. 2 Samuel 16 Absalom brings Ahithophel in. Hushai's been able to infiltrate, so now it's Ahithophel and Hushai. And Absalom seeks counsel from these two guys that once served David. One is a spy for David, and the other is there to destroy David. And Ahithophel speaks, and he says to Absalom, King, here's what you need to do. You need to get up on the rooftop of the palace with David's concubines and you need to violate them on the rooftop so that all of Israel will know you're serious about this. And then give me a handful of men because if we wait any longer, David is wily and he's going to slip the news. Give me a handful of men. I will hunt him tonight and I will personally run a spear through him. I will kill him myself and this will all be over. And that was brilliant, brilliant counsel. Because first of all, Absalom's declaring to the nation, I am committed to this. And secondly, Ahithophel will do what he said he was going to do. But of course, David had prayed earlier and said, God, would you thwart the counsel of Ahithophel and turn it to foolishness? And Absalom turns to Hushai and says, what do you have to say about the matter? You see, when I said earlier, any donkey can knock down a barn door, but only a carpenter can build one. Absalom's a donkey. And when he gets to a position of power, he doesn't know what to do. All, folks are really good at complaining, but you put them in authority, they're like, I don't know what to do. I just know how to complain. 
It's amazing how irritated we are with those who are in positions to lead, yet we've never done that ourselves. We sit back as armchair quarterbacks having no clue that, that politics is done incrementally and that you have to build coalitions by, it's by addition and multiplication, not by division and subtraction. Well, that didn't go. They didn't. And, and Christians are so bad at politics. We seek the perfect and lose the good. And we devour our own because of moral pietism. Moral pietism means you're greater than they are. And we love to justify our apathy by decrying the character of another. I can't vote for a man who's been three times married and twice divorced. Really? Yeah. And have you seen his tweets? He's caustic. That's fine, but would you do me a favor while you're there, you know, elevating yourself? Would you please take Samson out of the hall of faith in Hebrews 11? I've read judges about Samson's life. There's not one moral thing about his life. He was in a prostitute's bed all night and the spirit of the Lord came upon him. I can't teach that in Sunday school. He went to go pay off a gambling debt and the spirit of the Lord came upon him. What are the things we know about? What are his weaknesses? Women and his iconic hair. Does it remind you of anyone else? Jimmy Fallon messing with it. And yet Samson's in the hall of faith. Why would God put him there? Judges 14, four. What Samson's parents didn't realize is God was seeking an occasion to move against the Philistines. Samson was willing to do what God's people weren't, confront the enemy that was in the realm. You talk about the seven mountains of, of cultural influence. Sociologists describe these arts, entertainment, media, business, politics, education, religion, and family. Well, look at not this president, but the previous one. He had the number one television show in America, business. Trump brand was world-renowned. Politics. He took out 17 Republican candidates and the most heavily funded Democrat candidate in the history of the world, and he did it, talk about media, he did it with a Twitter account. Religion, not real good, but I have to tell you, no one's done more for life than that president in my lifetime. Family, yeah, he's been three times married and twice divorced. His ex-wives all respected him, had friendships with him, and his kids are all successful in their own right but we stand back in judgment because it's easier to complain than it is to build. We don't want to soil our hands in the dirty aspect of politics. Listen, politics is a blood sport, but don't forget, politics is the highest form of community. If God didn't intend us to be in politics, he would have never have invented marriage. No, I'm dead serious. There's rules to get along. To celebrate a birthday, you just got to stay alive. To celebrate an anniversary, you got to stop from killing each other. I thought that'd be funnier. You need rules and you need them at every level of life. And who's making those rules? Good government happens with good people, but Christians have abdicated their responsibility in the ecclesia. When did that happen? It used to be 50 years ago, you went to a church for an election day sermon and your voter guide. And all of you have been indoctrinated. Communism has infiltrated our seminaries, union seminary, all of them. And you think, no, that's not true. I've done my homework. I was a history major. I will contend with you. Let's debate on Tuesday night. You have have evidence, original manuscripts. Let's contend. My point is this. We complain about such things. But the idea is God wants us to participate again in the sake of our neighbors. And so here... This is the problem. Absalom now has Ahithophel on his side. David is lamenting. Hushai, the archite, says, King, Ahithophel's counsel is not good. And Hushai knows how to appeal to a narcissist, which is Absalom. And he looks at him, he says, King, here's what you need to do. Ahithophel's counsel is awful. Here's what you need to do, King. You need to assemble all of the tribes of Israel and let them gather. And you will be on a white steed in front of them. And you will come and the king, King David will yield to the massed and vast army that you have assembled as the people gather around you. They love you. 
And Absalom sees it in his mind, yes, my hair flowing in the wind on a white steed. <laughs> Tell me more. Put it right in my vein. This is so good. Hushai, so good. I love this. We are not going to accept <clears throat> Ahithophel's counsel. Hushai, this is so much better. And Ahithophel, 2 Samuel 17 so Absalom and all the men of Israel said the advice of Hushai the archite is better than the advice of Ahithophel for the Lord had purposed to defeat the good advice of Ahithophel to the intent that the Lord might bring disaster upon Absalom. Hushai warns David and, and, and Ahithophel was irritated. And this is what happens. Check this out, 2 Samuel 17. Now when Ahithophel saw that his advice was not followed, he saddled his donkey, he arose and went home to his house then he put his household in order, paid the bills, laid out the insurance policy, and then he hanged himself and died. And he was buried in his father's tomb. I was a sheriff's chaplain for the Ventura County Sheriff's Department. I remember going to a house where the man had shot himself with a 38, and his wife and his daughter were lamenting and they were distraught, and I comforted them. And I, I'll never forget, I walked into the living room and there on the, or excuse me, dining room, and there on the dining room table, where all the insurance policies and all the bills and the checks were written and he just laid it out like he was blessing his family. And I remember his wife saying, this is ridiculous. I don't want any of this, I want him back. And that's what Ahithophel did. Paid the bills, laid out the insurance policy and hanged himself. You know what you're saying? Absalom's an idiot. He didn't take my advice in this whole Rebellion is over. He's going to get crushed. David's going to wipe him off the face of the earth. And sure enough, Ahithophel would be caught in a terebinth tree. Excuse me, Absalom would be caught in a terebinth tree by his hair. And Joab would stick him with a spear and kill him. <laughs> wow. And you know why Ahithophel's counsel wasn't taken? Do you remember? Because David prayed. And God thwarted the counsel of Ahithophel. Ahithophel. The scripture says of him, and this is the last one, 2 Samuel 23. This is David's mighty men, all the guys that received the Medal of Honor. I think it's like 37 of them, a handful. Eliphelet, the son of Ahashabai, the son of the Mahakathite. And then here we go. Eliam, the son of Ahithophel, the Gilanite. Ahithophel's son, Eliam, served David and, and received the equivalent of our Medal of Honor. Ahithophel served David faithfully for decades. His son risked his life on the battlefield and went above and beyond, risking it for the sake of the kingdom and received a Medal of Honor that only 37 people would ever receive in all of Israel. This family was committed to David. How can a guy like Ahithophel side with Absalom, that idiot, It's real simple. You follow the genealogy. Ahithophel had a son, Eliam. Eliam had that medal of honor. You read the genealogy and Eliam had a daughter. And that daughter's name, Bathsheba. Bathsheba. David murdered Eliam's son-in-law and Ahithophel's grandson-in-law. David violated Ahithophel's granddaughter. And God thwarted Ahithophel's counsel? David's the murderer. David's the adulterer. He's the one that hurt his family. Why would God thwart Ahithophel's counsel? God, you got the wrong guy. Did he? When we're honest with God, he's merciful with us. David confessed his sin. He owned it. And God forgave it. But Ahithophel never forgave. With bitterness and revenge on his heart, he plotted for decades to take David out. And he said to Absalom when the time came, you take those concubines on the roof and you violate them like he violated my granddaughter. And then you murder him. 
like he murdered my grandson-in-law. Let me do it. I'll stick him. Is that what you want? You want revenge? You want justice or do you want mercy? Mercy triumphs over judgment. There was a parable Jesus told in Matthew 18. A man who owed 10,000 talents, a talent's a year's wages. He owed 10,000 years of wages. And he went to the man he owed it to. He couldn't pay it back in 10,000 lifetimes. And he pleaded that he'd have mercy on him. Mercy's not getting what you deserve. Please have mercy on me. And the man forgave 10,000 years of wages. Just like God cast your sin as far as the east is from the west to be remembered. No, he bled and died and walked the Via Dolorosa for you. And now someone comes to you and says, will you forgive me? And you are so upset. Well, that same man who'd been forgiven 10,000 years of wages went out and he found the guy who owed him 100 days wages. Denari is a day's wage. He owed him 100 days wages. And he strangled him and said, pay me everything you owe me or I'll put your entire family in jail. And all the other servants heard it. And they went back to the master and they said, this guy is strangling someone who owes him 100 days wages. You forgave him 10,000 years. And he calls him back in. And he'd always called him a servant the entire time. But now this time he looks at me and says, you wicked servant. You wicked servant. And his master was angry and delivered him to the tortures until he should pay all that was due him. And then Jesus concludes the story by saying, so my heavenly father also will do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother's trespasses. One thing God doesn't tolerate from his children is unforgiveness. And I'm gonna tell you one story and I'm finished. My mom. Michelle and I, we did, she almost died from the first pregnancy. We had two girls. She'd had another miscarriage and we were like, this is, this is scary. And I'm doing my morning devotion. Michelle's asleep. And I get to Psalm 127. The Lord will, said, your sons will be as olive shoots around your table. I had two daughters. And I felt like the Lord said, we're gonna have boys. And I, I went and woke her up. I go, honey, um, God told me we're gonna have two boys. She's like, no, we aren't, I'm done. I'm like, oh, okay, sorry. I guess I had pizza or something. I don't know what it was. And a week later, she comes in with a pregnancy stick and she says, I'm pregnant. And we said, let's go and we'll get the ultrasound. And the doctor took the ultrasound and said, don't tell us what it is. Just fold it up and put it in the envelope. He does. And then Michelle and I pray. We say, let's just pray. And each of us individually will pick a name. We'll put it in the envelope and we'll open it at Christmas because the baby was due in April. And so Christmas comes. We're at her parents' house. We open it up. It's a boy. And we both picked the name Daniel. We're like, whoa, this is so cool. <sighs> and I call my mother, who's not a believer at the time, and I wanted to testify to her. And I go, mom, you won't believe it. And my mom, uh, not being a believer, she was the French word, a little bit of a, what it biatch. And I, I, she's in heaven now. She's on fire for the, she's, she's good. She's laughing like you are. So don't worry, I'm not being rude. She was tough. I called her up. I go, mom, you won't believe it. And we prayed and then we the envelope and then boy and then this thing and, and, and Psalm 127 and Daniel. And my mom goes, no, no grandchild of mine will be named Daniel. And she hangs up the phone. I'm like, Pum, I call her back. I go, what's going on? She goes, what's your grandfather's name? I go, I don't know. I didn't know you had a dad. <laughs> she goes, his name was Daniel Frank McKee. He was the most awful man who ever lived. And no grandchild of mine will even name Daniel. I go, mom, like, I'm not here to insult you. I just know God told us. I said, I, I, I just got to do what he told me to do. I'll never forget. Yeah. He was born, and of all the grandchildren, my mom loved Daniel the most. And she held him in his arms, and Michelle testified. She started saying his name, Daniel. And Daniel's like, she's like, Daniel, Daniel. You could just see it. God was healing as she was forgiving. She came to know the Lord. Daniel was an instrument of that. She learned how to forgive. God wants you to be forgiven today for all of sin. Jesus has come to me, all your burden and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. If you believe in your heart, confess with your tongue, Jesus is Lord, you will be saved, you'll be forgiven. You'll be, he'll cast your sin as far as the east is from the west to be remembered no more. And then as you're forgiven, he's gonna give you the ability to forgive. You're gonna, you're gonna be forgiven 10,000 talents. It's gonna be real easy to forgive 100 denarii. He's gonna do that for you today. And then guess what? You're gonna be able to see through the eyes of God.
It's time to be forgiven and it's time to forgive. Right now, this is what Christendom's all about. For God so loved the world, you, that he gave his only son so you could be forgiven. Blood was already shed to forgive you and to give you life. Close your eyes, please, and bow your heads. This is a private moment. I'm, I'm sincerely asking. This is between you and the Lord. And the Bible says, if you profess me before man, I'll profess you before my Father in heaven. I'll be the witness to that. The rest of you, let it be a private moment for these folks. As your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, the Lord says to you, if you believe in your heart and confess with your tongue that, that Jesus is Lord, that he's the Savior of the world, that he is your Savior, you'll be saved. Your name will be written in the Lamb's Book of Life. You'll be forgiven. Your sins will be cast as far as the east is from the west, past, present, and future. You'll no longer live in bitterness or unforgiveness or revenge. You'll have freedom. You'll be set out from that prison you've placed yourself in. But it begins with an act of faith. It's an act of faith. As Pastor Aaron said, you have to, you have to go towards that. If you want to receive Christ as your, faith, as, as your Savior, your responsibility is to act on that by just a simple, he went to the cross for you. All he's asking you to do is raise your hand. This is an acknowledgement. If you want to receive Christ today, you want to be forgiven and have the power to forgive, would you right now raise your hand? Just do it. Amen. God bless you. God bless you. Anyone else? Raise your hand. I see you over here. Amen. Don't be afraid. God hasn't given you a spirit of fear, power, love, and a sound mind. Maybe you're already a believer. You, you've been living in bitterness. It's time to let that go. And so right now, I'm going to pray for those who've given their heart to the Lord and those that know you need to let it go. Lord, thank you. We rejoice in the miracle of salvation as we've watched folks commit their lives to you to be forgiven and cleansed of all unrighteousness and now having the ability to forgive and to walk in life and freedom, remove that bitterness. And God, thank you for doing that work in our lives. These are men and women after your own heart. You did it for David, do it for us. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. Bible says that when one sinner gives their heart to the Lord, the angels in heaven rejoice. I think we can join them right now and clap for those who gave their heart to the Lord.